You all ready to dive into God's Word this morning? I know I am. I'd like to say a prayer for us uh, before we dive in, okay? Dear God, thank you so much, Lord, for um, the life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for a new year. Lord, for some, uh, some are glad that 2014 is over because it was such a difficult year for them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, set us on a course today to believing what you say about us and to living out of that great truth. May the spirit of the living God have freedom in his ministry of truth teaching to all of us today. May I speak your words, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, one of the most powerful messages that you can convey to someone is this. I am for you. I'm on your side. I'm in your corner. I'm on your team. I've got your back. I've got some guys who pray for me, and when, when I come in, often they'll look at me and say, hey, I got your six today. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's, a, that's an empowering message, isn't it? I'm for you. I'm for you. Others may be against you, but not me. I'm I'm with you. I am on your side. I've got your back. If you want to put wind in somebody's sails, get that message across to them. I am for you. This is one of the most impactful things you could get across to your spouse. Hey, honey, I want you to know I'm for you. Or to your son or to your daughter or to your small group members or ministry team members or coworkers, colleagues at work. I am for you. So just to practice, turn to someone right now if you know them, and say, I am for you, okay? Just let them know that. Now, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to tell someone that, that you're for them. But it's quite another to, to demonstrate that by your actions that that's really true, right? I was talking to a friend recently, and I was... He was down a little bit, and I was trying to get this across to him, like, hey, man, I am, I am for you. You know what he said? He said, well, it hasn't felt like that the last six months. I'm like, ouch. <laughs> ouch. It was, a, it was a rebuke. Our actions and attitudes can, can either reinforce or undermine our words, what we say. If I say, hey, bro, I'm for you, I'm for you, but then I go and, and undermine him on Facebook or break a promise that I've made to him, or fail to show up at a really important event in his life, then, then I'm sending a mixed message, right? But when someone's actions line up with their words, that's super impactful. I'm for you. During the month of December, we explored one of the most beloved verses in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. And now to start out this new year of 2015 right, we felt led by God to dive into one of the most beloved chapters in all of the Bible, and that's Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be today, Romans 8, or if you want to fire up your app and, and go there. And I believe that, that the truth contained in this one chapter, this awesome chapter, can change your life. It can change your outlook, it can change your mood, it can change your attitude, can change your life. And the main message of Romans 8 is found in verse 31 where it says this, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Would you say that with me? If God is for us, then who can be against us? I just like the sound of that, don't you? Two things jump out at me. First, God is for 
his people. He is on our side. He is not against us, hoping that we'll mess up or fail. He is our advocate, our supporter, our defender. And second, if God is for us, then whatever or whoever might be against us doesn't ultimately really stand a chance, do they? If God is for us. Listen, Satan is against you. The devil is against you, but he is no match for God, and he will not ultimately succeed in taking you down. If God is for you, who can be against you? Your boss, who may resemble Satan at times, <laughs> may be against you, but one who is much greater than your boss has positioned himself as your eternal defender. You may have an enemy in your neighborhood, on your block, at school, on your campus. He's trying to take you out and take you down and defame you, but if you belong to God, you can take great comfort in the fact that God has promised to protect you from losing all of the things that really matter the most. If God is for us, really, who can be against us? Church, it's so important to think correctly about this, to think correctly about it, to, to embrace God's view of us, to believe the truth about Him. I have a pastor friend who sums up his perspective with a little axiom that goes like this. I've written it down there for you. Gospel thinking produces kingdom living. Gospel thinking produces kingdom living. I, I believe he's right. Marinate your mind in gospel truth, and your lifestyle is bound to be affected, right? Believe the right things, and your behavior will eventually reflect it. Paul said it this way in Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. And so if you're a believer here today, if you're a genuine, blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, I urge you to train your mind to think like this. God is for me. God is for me. Others may be against me, yes, but, but God isn't. The only one who could rightly condemn me for all of my failures and all of my sins has instead made a way to be my advocate. Through the gospel, the judge, the holy judge, has become my dad. God is for me. Thinking like that will change your life. It'll change your life. Now, here's the wonderful truth. God doesn't just say it, he doesn't just state it, he backs it up. His actions reinforce his words, that's what Romans 8 is all about. So as we begin our journey into this great chapter, I'm praying that, that as a church on the front edge of 2015 that we're going to see this more clearly, how by his actions God has actually demonstrated that he is for us. So listen as I read just the first four verses today is all we'll, we'll take. Here's what Paul wrote. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Man, that's so encouraging. Those words just are oxygen for my soul. God has demonstrated in so many ways that He is for His people. Just in these first four verses, I see five of them. Five ways that God has proven that He is for us. Let's look at them. Number one, God has shown that He is for us by removing our guilt and revoking our death sentence. And theologians call that, you know, theologians have big words for everything, justification. Justification. There is therefore now, what? No condemnation. Say that with me. No condemnation. Zero, zip, nada, none. No wrath left for God's people. Pastor Steve, how can I know for sure that God is for me? Well, here's one way. If you've believed his gospel, God says that he has rendered a not guilty verdict over your life. No condemnation. Not guilty forever. If God was against you, he would have just let justice run its course, right? But he didn't. He is for you. So the language Paul's using here, it's, it's legal language. It's, it's terms from the courtroom. So let's kind of place ourselves there, all right? You're sitting in a courtroom on a hard bench, probably. You're about to face sentencing by the judge for crimes, crimes that you've, you've committed. And you're sitting there, you fully expect to get what's coming to you, what you deserve. You know in your heart that, that you're guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt, guilty of countless treasonous thoughts and inclinations and actions against the supreme authority of the universe, every one of them documented and proven, and now justice begs to be served. You, you're, you're sitting there, you're anticipating the worst, a, a sentence of death. You, you close your eyes and you brace yourself for hearing those words that you expect to come thundering down from the bench, guilty, condemned, death penalty, away with him, away with her. And as you're waiting to hear that, you hear something else and you're stunned. Instead of guilty, you hear these words, no condemnation, not guilty. And you're thinking, did I just hear what I thought I heard? All the charges against me have been dropped. I'm, I'm totally acquitted of all of my crimes. No death sentence, no lethal injection. There is therefore now no condemnation. You know, if that was your situation, those would be about the sweetest sounding words you could hear, right? Not guilty. That changes everything. But how, how can this be? The law's been broken. Justice must be served. How can a just judge do that? How can he pardon guilty sinners and still be a good judge? And beyond that, what in the world possessed him to do such a thing? Well, there are many explanations, but the one Paul's honing in here on, in Romans 8 is this. God, the judge, is for you. He's for you. What is in his heart towards you is, is great love for his people. Love so deep that it moves him to, to come to their defense even though they've broken his holy laws. And so he 
chooses to put his mercy on display by removing the condemnation that hangs over our heads. And he does it in such a way that justice is still served. Marvelous truth, isn't it? It's called justification by faith. And it's one of the prevalent themes in all of the book of Romans. As Paul wrote in chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like God the King offering amnesty to rebels who don't deserve it. Say, what does this word justified mean in the biblical sense? Well, it means to be pardoned. Even though you broke the law, it means to be acquitted of all of your crimes. It means to have your guilt removed and your death penalty revoked. And when you're sitting on death row, there is no better news that you can hear than that. There is, therefore, no condemnation. Like Jesus said, you remember this, to the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery? Remember when he said, those of you who have no sin of your own, throw the first stones and all the rocks started dropping to the ground and Jesus walked up to the woman and he said, woman, where are your accusers? They're all gone. Neither do I condemn you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Many of you are thinking, but, but okay. But I'm a Christian and I still struggle with sin. I mean, I, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I still struggle with sin and I cave in and give in more than I really care to admit, Steve. Does Romans 8.1 still apply to me as a, a, a struggling, sinning Christian at times? Well, think about it. What comes before Romans 8? It's not a trick question. <laughs> Romans 7, right? And some of you know what Romans 7 says. In, in, in that chapter, the great apostle Paul himself was very candid about his own struggle against sin. Remember, that's the chapter where he says, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing, and I'm frustrated. And he, he ends up by saying, who will deliver me from this body of death, this sinful flesh that I'm encased in? And then the next verse, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That tells me that even struggling, sinning Christians can claim this for themselves. Did you know that all of your sins, if you're in Christ, all of your sins have been pardoned? Not just the sins up to 1141 on January, what is this, the 4th? Not just the sins that you've committed up till now, but even all of those that you have yet to commit. I mean, think about it. When Jesus died on the cross, all your sins were future. All your sins were uncommitted. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can know that God is for you today because he demonstrated it by taking away your guilt. Amen? But there is a qualifier here, isn't there? This not guilty verdict applies to whom? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that leads me to a second way that God has shown that he is for us. Namely, number two, by uniting us to Jesus in a life-giving relationship. What theologians call union with Christ. Union with Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
it would be impossible to overstate the importance of that little phrase, in Christ, in the New Testament. It's all over the place. We can know that God is for us because of what he did to make sure that we would be in the place of ultimate blessing. And where is that place? In Christ. You want to receive all that God has to offer. That's where you need to be, in Christ. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul wrote this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Where? In Christ. You say, I don't get that. What do you mean, in Christ? What's that talking about? Well, to, to get it, we've got we to look at humanity from God's point of view, okay? And, and the Bible tells us that God views every human being on the planet as being either in Adam or in Christ. That's it. You either have Adam, our ancestor, as your representative before God, or you have Jesus Christ. Everybody's either in Adam or in Christ. Who you are in makes all the difference. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Which group would you rather be in? <laughs> you know, some people think that salvation just means having all your sins forgiven. And while it certainly does include that, salvation is so much more. Salvation involves being transferred from one domain, one realm, to an entirely different one. It means going from being represented by Adam to going to being represented by Jesus before God. It means becoming a part of Christ, members of His body, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, joined with Jesus in a vital union, one with Him as Jesus himself prayed in the garden. Now, we don't fully get this, do we? In Christ. It, it, it means that we're so close to Jesus that his identity becomes our identity. His name becomes our name. His standing before God becomes our standing before God. It means that we, it means that all the things that happen to him happen to us. You ever heard the verse, I have been crucified with Christ? Buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him. You heard those verses before? Being in Christ means that we've participated in a very mysterious, mystical way in the events that happened to him. We're that close. We get his name, his status, his record. We receive a measure of his authority, his inheritance, his destiny. I think that's why Jesus chose the symbol of baptism. To represent salvation, because in baptism, a Christian is totally immersed in water, right? Buried in the likeness of his death. Hopefully raised back to walk in newness of life. And, and the idea is, it pictures being completely enveloped in Christ's identity, immersed in him. You've heard it said, right? When God looks at a Christian, he sees that person through the lens of Christ. You get this? You went from being, one moment, a guilty, condemned, death row lawbreaker to, in the next moment, being spiritually alive, a Christian having the very identity of Christ, and God did it. 
1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's the sovereign work of the living God. All glory goes to him. Fellow Christian, listen to me. God is for you. He's your advocate, and he's demonstrated it by removing your guilt and condemnation, by placing you in his son, giving you a brand new identity. And third, here's another way he's demonstrated it. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Number three, God has proved that he is for us by setting us free from sin's mastery and penalty. Give you another big word there, liberation. (laughs) Justification, union with Christ, and liberation. Verse two, Paul talks about some, some laws here and He's using that term to to mean a a principle, an an operative principle that governs reality. One principle, the law of sin and death, has been superseded or overcome by another, the law of the spirit of life, such that we've been released from the obligations of that first law. You say, well, what is the law of sin and death? Well, Paul has described it in chapter 7. It's this, that all humans are born slaves to sin. And sin always leads to death and separation from God. But for those who are in Christ, something has changed. And he's, he's using a word picture here again, and we need to kind of get into it. He says, talks about being set free. Do you see that? So here's the picture. Think, think of it like this. You are a Negro in the deep south in the mid-1800s, and you are a slave. It's all you've ever known. Your grandpa was a slave. Your dad was a slave. You're a slave. Living your life every day to serve your owner, your master. It's the only life you've ever known. You know nothing else. He owns you. You're his property. He has legal claim to you. That's just your reality. But then January 1st, 1863 rolls around. On that day, you know what happened? The President of the United States, President Abraham Lincoln, issued a historic, momentous executive order. Nearly three years into the fighting of the Civil War, the President declared this, that all persons held as slaves within the seceding states are and henceforward shall be free. With the stroke of a pen, what do we call it? The Emancipation Proclamation. And in an instant, people who had been slaves all their lives, for, for months, years, or decades, were, had a change in their legal status from slave to freedman or freedwoman. From being property to being free. And so there you are. Now it's January 2nd, and you get wind of this, what the president has done. And you didn't hear it from your master. No, he would not want you to know this. He didn't tell you that. He wouldn't because he's not happy about your change in legal status. He wants to believe he still has a claim on your life and and on your loyalty. Truth be told, he resents your newfound freedom. Still thinks of you as his slave. He can order you around and tell you what to do, even though things have changed. Not only is he still thinking that way, the reality is you've never thought of yourself as anything but a slave. Slavery's always been your identity. You viewed yourself as property, obligated to serve your master. And so to think of yourself in any other way is a huge mind shift. 
chart a new course for your life that doesn't include this daily obligation you've always had to keep this man happy, to serve him, to be at his beck and call. It seems strange to you. You know nothing else, and yet it's true despite what your old master thinks and despite what you're thinking yourself in your own mind. You are now free. The only one with the authority to do it made it happen. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, what Paul is saying is that this is exactly what the president of presidents has done for his people. With a single stroke, with a single bloody stroke, God liberated his people from the obligation to obey sin. He actually broke the legal power of sin over our lives canceling the obligation that we have had all of our lives to obey sin, to obey those evil inclinations that are within all of us. Did you know, Christian, that you do not have to sin? Now, you're likely to sin before your life is done. You don't have to. You're not obligated to that old master anymore. You see, we can now, we who are in Christ, can now look at sin as our former master and say, look, bud, I don't have to serve you anymore. You have no claim on my life. You have no legal rights over me anymore. I know in the old days you did, but those days are over. The law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It was for freedom that Christ has set me free, no longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery because the Son has set me free. I am free indeed. I'm not bound to serve you any longer. I'm now free to go and love and serve my new master, whose name is Jesus. You see, some people think they have a twisted view of what freedom is. Some people think that freedom means being able to do whatever you want to do. They think that freedom means being independent of all authority. Nobody can tell me what to do anymore. No constraints. I'm not answerable to anybody, not accountable to anybody. Friends, that is a mirage. That is an illusion for human beings. Only God has that kind of freedom. It's certainly not the Scripture's view of the freedom that's been purchased for God's people. The Bible's view is this. True freedom means being emancipated from our cruel taskmaster so that we can now gladly serve our new master, Jesus Christ. That's freedom. That's what Paul wrote about in Romans 6.22. Listen, where he said this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Listen, you can know that God is for you because he has terminated your legal obligation to serve sin so that you can now serve him. You can serve God gladly, joyfully. He's not a cruel taskmaster. Only a God who is for us would do something like that, especially when you consider the cost. What it cost him to do it. And that leads us to a fourth way that God proved that he is for us. So justification, union with Christ, liberation, and now substitution. And here we come to the heart and the soul of the gospel. God has demonstrated that he is for us by condemning our sin in the body of his own sinless son. Listen to verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, 
could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here here it is. Here, here, Here is the gospel. Here is substitution. Here is God arranging to take our place. If God wasn't for us, if he wasn't for us, would he have ever sent his son Jesus to be a sin offering for our sin? Pastor Steve, I don't feel loved by God. I look around, I look at my circumstances, and I wonder if God really has my best in mind. I mean, it seems like things are stacked up against me. How could I know for sure, Pastor Steve, that God is for me? I really only have one answer to that. Look at the cross. Stare at it until you get what it means. Then you'll know. The measure of God's sorrow at the cross is the measure of God's love for you. Did you know that? What he was willing to go through, what he was willing to endure so that you could belong to him tells us how much he loved us. To truly appreciate the cross, though, you have to understand God's law. Paul here states that God, by sending his own son, did what the law was powerless to do. You see that? And what was that? What was the law unable to do? Well, think about, think about, this. Think about the Ten Commandments for a minute. Think about the Ten Commandments. Do you even know the Ten Commandments? <laughs> Be good to review them, wouldn't it? Ten Commandments are good, Yes. They are good. They're good because they emanate from God's very nature. Romans 7, Paul says the law is good. We know that God's law is good. But you know what else? It's good, but it's weak. It's good, but it's impotent. It's powerless. It's inadequate. You say, how so? Because the law of God does not impart any desire or power or ability to keep it. All it does is sets the bar really high, says, keep, keep my demands, keep the law, and when we fail to do it, which we all do, it condemns us as lawbreakers. John MacArthur wrote this, the law cannot make men righteous, but can only expose their unrighteousness and condemn them for it. The law cannot make men perfect, but can only reveal their great imperfection. What the law could not do actually help people live a righteous life, God did. How? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. I hope you never grow tired of hearing it. I hope you never grow tired of hearing what God has done for you in Christ. He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Aren't you glad he doesn't say he sent his son in sinful flesh? Did Jesus have any sin? No sin. But he appeared to be human, right? Likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like any other Jewish man of that day. Sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, sent to earth on a mission not to condemn sinners, but to condemn sin. How did he do that? By receiving God's judgment 
against our sin in his own flesh, in his own body. Hanging there on that tree, beaten, bloodied, pierced through. God was judging our sins in the body of his son, the flesh of his son. He took your sins and mine, laid them on his own son, and then punished him instead of us. Jesus actually became sin, the Bible says, for us. Can you imagine? For the first time in history, the only time in history, pure holiness encased in pure sin. It's hard to even fathom what that means. And as such, he absorbed the penalty that lawbreakers deserved in his own body. He had no sin of his own, and that's why he could qualify as our Savior, the only one. Listen, if God wasn't for us, would he have gone to such painful lengths as he did to save us? Or is this true? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Some people take this lightly, but I hope you don't. The cross, the cross is the supreme expression of God's being for us. His advocacy for his people. And think about this, beyond that, there is no more secure guarantee that God will accomplish everything else he has promised. If he was willing to do that, get this, if he was willing to do that, Will he not also make sure that he delivers on every other promise he made for his people? My wife gave me a little article to read this week. It was really good. It talked about looking into the face of God. What do you see? In your mind's eye, when you look at the face of God looking back at you, what do you see? A scowl? Judgment? Disapproval? disgust or do you see delight joy joy that picture is really important it's going to define a lot of, of about who you are the cross is the supreme measure of God's love for you and it tells us like nothing else does that God is for us he's for us well there's a final way in this section, that we can know for sure that God is for us. And this one brings it all into the present. Look again at God's particular purpose that Paul has in mind here as he writes this. It's, he says, God condemned sin in the body of Jesus, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And with that statement, Paul forges an unbreakable link from what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago to what you will do this afternoon. And how you will treat your spouse tonight and how you will interact with your coworkers on Monday and Tuesday and how you will entertain yourself and where you will seek happiness from and how you'll manage your financial priorities and where you'll invest your time and energy. There is a link, a connection between that hill, Calvary, and your life today and tomorrow. Do you believe that? I'll say it like this. 
God demonstrates that he is for his people, number five, by empowering us by his indwelling Holy Spirit to live righteously. And the theological term is sanctification. Sanctification, sanctify, sanctify, to make holy. Sanctification is the process by which God works through his spirit in our lives to make his people holy. So that our lifestyle, get this now, so that our lifestyle increasingly matches our identity. See, if you're in Christ today, you don't have to try and become something that you're not. You simply have to live up to who you are. Big difference. Big difference. Some people think that receiving salvation is kind of like having a fire insurance policy in your pocket that guarantees that you won't end up in hell no matter how you live your life from this moment on. And I believe people who think that way are sadly deceived, but maybe not for the reasons you might think. Salvation does indeed guarantee a home in heaven for true believers, yes? Our great hope with Jesus. But it also transforms us now. Didn't, didn't in the Old Testament, didn't Jeremiah, when he was talking about the new covenant, didn't he say what God's going to do is he's going to put a new heart within us. A new heart that, that beats with God's heart, that loves the things God loves and hates the things that God hates. New desires, new appetites, new affections, new inclinations. Jesus died to redeem for himself a special, unique people who would be holy in heart. Lovers of righteousness. You see, if I can put my theologian's cap on, justification produces sanctification. Having a new legal identity impacts your lifestyle. Belief determines behavior. Gospel thinking produces kingdom living. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it got to happen. It's got to happen. It won't be the perfection of your life, but it will be the direction of your life. It won't be the perfection of your life, but it will be the direction of your life. You'll want to please your father because you have a new heart. Here's the difference between Christianity one of the differences between Christianity and all the other religions of the world that call people to live by an ethical standard, and they all do. Every religion calls people to live a certain way. Here's the difference. Christ, our Lord, didn't just hand out a code of conduct and say, just do it. Aren't you glad of that? That would just lead to frustration. Instead, he gave us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us as our empowering guide for life. Yes, isn't this true? This is, Buddha didn't do that. Confucius did not do that. Jesus said, look, guys, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. It's better for you that I leave and go back to heaven because I'm going to send the Spirit, and he, he is with you, and He will be in you. And you will have a power source in you that people who are just in Adam don't have. The presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of us 
speaking to us. Have you heard the voice of the Spirit lately in your heart? Speaking to us, guiding us, directing our steps, correcting us, convicting us when we need it, empowering us to live our lives in such a way that our Father in Heaven is proud to call us His kids. Man, this is so good. This is such a rich, precious truth. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To, to know what it truly means to walk not according to the flesh, not according to the dictates and the inclinations of our flesh, but walk according to the Spirit of God who lives within us. Man, do you think if we were a church full of people who were doing that, that there would be some fruit, there would be some love flowing out of us to our neighbors, that there would be joy? Do you think if, if all of us in this room were walking in accordance with the Spirit who lives within us, there'd be some peace and some patience and some gentleness and meekness and self-control? Do you think we would be a blessing to our community and our city and our neighbors? What loving fruit would be expressed through our lives if we learned this well? Well, that's what we'll be exploring in more depth next weekend. We're going to stop here for now. So here at the, at the front edge of a brand new year, I just I wanted to look all of you in the eye. And if you were in Christ, just tell you again, remind you of what you already know, that God is for you. He is for you. He's proven it. He's demonstrated it in your life, supremely through the cross of Jesus. And I'm for you. I'm for you. And, and all of us as pastors in this church are for you. And our, our, our sincere hope and prayer is that when you look into the face of God and see his countenance towards you, that you don't feel judgment and condemnation and disapproval and disgust, but that you, you sense that he's looking at you through his own son because you're in Christ and he sees you as righteous and he delights in you and has great joy in you. That'll change everything. That will change everything. So let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. And I believe that the Spirit who indwells us and who is here this morning has some responses to the Word of God. And I thought of several of them. And this first one, it's, um, it's not a primary application of this text, but I do think it's a secondary application. And it's this. Are there some people in your life who are wondering if you're, if you're really for them? Would you think about that for a minute? Are there some people in your life, in your family, at work, school, who you're thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know that they really believe that I'm for them. And the Spirit is telling you that you need to clarify that with them. I need to make sure I'm conveying the right message. I pray the Spirit of God will give you the strength to do that. I imagine there's a number of you who would say, my, my response to this is that I, I need to get this on a deeper level. I, I really need to think correctly 
about how God views me and, and really believe this truth that God is for me. And if that's you, would you just slip your hand up? I just, I need to get this at a deeper level in my heart, that God is for me, because I'd like to include you in a prayer here in just a few moments. Okay. Maybe there are some of you who, your response is, is something like this. Well, I, I know I'm a member of Adam's race, but I'm, I'm really not 100% sure that I'm in Christ, but I want to be. Would you lift your hands? Thank you. Yeah. See several on my left. How about over here on my right? Father God, thank you so much through your spirit of giving us the word of God so that we wouldn't have to wander aimlessly through life wondering, wondering what you think of us. Thank you for inspiring Paul to write these words in Romans 8. I pray for my many friends here today, Lord, that they would get it, that they would get it way down deep in their heart, in their, in their bones, that you are for them and that you've proven it time and time and time again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in confidence that that's true and that our lives would reflect, we'd have that bounce in our step because we know that you are for us, so who can be against us? Lord, for these who have said today, I, I don't know that I'm in Christ. I'm not 100% sure. I want to be sure today. I pray you'd prompt them, even now, through your spirit, to come and ask a prayer partner how they can be sure, how they can know that for sure. Lord, may we believe in our minds these truths and then walk them out in our daily lives. I pray in Christ's name.